KPFK in Los Angeles, this is Living in the USA. I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Later in the show, voters in Maine will decide next month whether to turn the state's private utilities public. If that happens, it would be a huge step towards dealing with the climate crisis and a model for other states. Bill McKibben will explain. He's a hero of ours, founder of 350.org, the Global Climate Action Group. He's currently working with the new environmental group for people over 60 called Third Act. Also, two girls grew up in the 1980s in a small town in Arkansas. One made it out and became a successful journalist and writer. Her best friend, who had been a super smart kid, fell into drugs, got pregnant too young, and lived a life of petty crime. How did their lives turn out to be so different? Katha Pollitt will talk about the wonderful new memoir by Monica Potts, The Forgotten Girls. But first, Last Friday, the UAW announced that GM had agreed that workers in their new EV battery factories will be covered under the union contract. This is a historic development in our transition to electric vehicles. For comment, we turn to Harold Meyerson. He's editor-at-large of The American Prospect. Harold, welcome back. Always good to be here, John. Well, I also want to ask you your thoughts about Israel's war with Hamas. But first, I want to talk about the UAW. Exactly why is this a historic breakthrough for American workers? Well, to begin with, this is something that the auto companies in general, and GM in particular, were resisting. The theory being that they could get away with using the switch from fossil fuel to electrification of cars to further weaken the union and their workers. Those workers who have been in electrical vehicle plants and in bat electric battery uh, factories have been paid less and uh, not getting the benefits, et cetera, that UAW members get working for uh, GM, Ford, and Stellantis, which is formerly Chrysler. So this kind of portends the future of this segment of the working class, since we're moving from fossil fuel-powered cars to electric-powered cars. Really, the most important long-range demand of the auto worker union has been we want uh, the same benefits and pay and rights as we transition to electric cars, and we are on strike, buddy, in order to uh, make that clear and compel the auto companies to do that. And that's what GM has just agreed to. I thought the auto companies said it was impossible to include the battery plants in the contract because they were joint ventures. Do we know what made GM change their mind? Well, I don't think it was a rethink of that as such. I think the UAW, uh, in, in its sort of rolling strike, it was clear that its next target was going to be GM's most profitable factory, which is in Arlington, Texas, which makes uh, SUVs and, and other GM autos that are the most profitable for GM. And GM said, oh, gosh, well, OK, uh, we are the big, uh, the big fish uh, uh, in these joint ventures. And so we're just going to say, well, we were wrong. It's possible we can make we can do that. And in fact, that's what they agreed to. 
of course, I had never heard of GM Arlington, but you're right. They make full-size SUVs for Chevy, GMC, and Cadillac. Reuters says it's the most profitable manufacturing facility in the world. And let's note this is a union plant. I thought low-wage non-union plants were the most profitable, but apparently that's wrong. Well, you, you know, you haven't uh, reaped the profits from selling a, a large GM SUV. <laughs> In your piece for the prospect, you pointed to some historic parallels to this threat to strike the GM Arlington plant. Well, yes, really the founding strike for the UAW and the founding strike really for uh, industrial workers in America was the strike that uh, the UAW waged against General Motors in the winter of 1936-37, which was the strike that first led or compelled, I should say, General Motors to recognize the union at all. And they did that by uh, sit-down strikes. They barricaded themselves into several GM factories in the largest concentration of GM factories, which then was in Flint, Michigan. But after about a month, they weren't really getting anywhere. And, uh, you know, the efforts of the company to dislodge them had not succeeded, but their effort to get a contract had not succeeded either. So they decided to, you know, take one factory, as the UAW just did now with the Arlington factory, and th that was crucial to uh, making the parts that all other GM factories needed. Uh, in order to do that, since uh, they knew that GM had spies throughout, uh, you know, their union. They kind of let the word go out that they were going to occupy uh, Chevrolet Number no. Nine in Flint, uh, and a pitched battle uh, took place in Chevrolet Number no. Nine. While uh, management wasn't looking, and the company's goons weren't looking, and the private police weren't looking, they then see Chevrolet Number no. Four, which was the parts factory. Uh, without which uh, GM could not really operate at all. So, you know, this is kind of, in a way, an echo of that. You pick the most strategically important factory. Back in 1937, they had to wage a pitch battle at another factory to be able to take the parts factory. But that worked then, and it appears that uh, going on the threat to go on strike in Arlington uh, had a real effect now. So this is all about GM. But the strike is also against Ford and Stellantis, formerly Chrysler. Those two have not agreed to include their uh, EV battery workers in the new contract. Well, the whole pattern that, G, uh, that the UAW has generally used, which they're not quite doing this time, is to go on strike against one of the big three, get what they want there, stop striking there, and keep striking at the other two. This could well play out this time as well. If they get uh, more of what they want from one of the big three, in this case, General Motors, they can say, okay, GM, let's sign a contract. And if the workers ratify it, then there's no strike against GM. But guess what? GM is doing fine at that point. They're back to full production. But Ford and Stellantis are still shut down. So that's the, uh, that's the logic to this. I checked the geography of GM's battery plants. Right now, they only have one going. It's in Lordstown, Ohio, legendary site of class struggle. GM has two more battery plants under construction, one in Lansing, Michigan, where they already assembled the Chevy Camaro, 
and the other will be in Spring Hill, Tennessee, where there's also a giant GM uh, assembly plant that assembles the Cadillac SUVs. So these are going to be kind of sister operations to long-time existing GM assembly plants. That's right. But if they decide to build more, and given the shift to uh, electric cars, they will doubtless will decide to do more. This covers those as well. We have to talk about the politics of all this, that transition to electric vehicles has become a political issue in the 2024 election. Joe Biden is spending tens of billions on the transition, and Trump, people will recall, went to Michigan the same day Biden did. Biden became the first president ever to join a picket line at GM's Willow Run parts distribution warehouse in Ypsilanti, Michigan. Trump spoke at a non-union plant invited by management and there he denounced the ev transition as a hoax that is destroying american jobs he said china is going to manufacture all the ev cars so so this agreement about gm's ev workers and battery workers coming under the uaw contract politically this is a big deal Yes, it is a big deal because, as you said, Trump says, well, we're not going to really make any uh, EVs. And if we keep shifting to EV construction, well, no one's going to buy them and uh, China will dominate it. But, you know, what the UAW is demonstrating, uh, independent of Joe Biden, is that they can get good wages and good benefits for workers making electric vehicles. The Trump argument is becoming ignore what you're seeing because yes. what you're seeing is a rush to construct uh, battery factories and electrical vehicle assembly factories in all parts of the nation really uh including you know the midwest the south and the southwest and uh trump is saying well that's really not going to be here but the more it's here it's going to get a little harder to say it's not going to be here the most surprising thing to me was josh hawley the Republican senator from Missouri, who you will recall on January 6th, raised his fist in solidarity with the crowd of Trump supporters outside the Capitol and then ran from them when the mob invaded the Capitol. Josh Hawley visited the UAW picket line in Wentzville, Missouri, west of St. Louis, which produces Chevy and GMC trucks. He posed for pictures with striking workers carrying UAW signs. He tweeted those pictures with the caption, these workers deserve better pay, better benefits, and a guarantee their jobs will stay in America. Josh Hawley is up for re-election in 2024. And in Ohio, Republican Senator J.D. Vance visited a UAW picket line in Toledo, where GM assembles Jeeps. He posed for pictures with striking workers carrying UAW signs and tweeted those pictures with the caption, these workers have a simple message, good wages for an honest day's work. I'm proud to support them. This is something I don't think we've ever seen in the United States, Republican senators on UAW picket lines. What's going on here? We've seen nothing like this in the last 50 years. That's that's for sure. What's happening is that the Republican Party base has become increasingly working class. I mean, they won them over largely on cultural issues, but there they are, and they have needs and demands that aren't simply cultural. If the Republicans were to banish all of the pronoun reforms, uh, <laughs> that wouldn't materially benefit 
working class Republicans. And so in areas where there is still a union presence and a UAW presence, which is not the South, which is not the Mountain West, but is states like Ohio and Missouri, you're beginning to get Republicans who have affiliated themselves with the working class that they that comes over on cultural issues and racial issues now on economic issues as well. Hawley and Vance are both smart guys. Hawley is up in 24, Vance later on, but they kind of get that they need those votes, particularly in as much as they've lost the votes that are historically Republican among disproportionately college-educated voters. And so I don't know that this portends a future for the Republican Party generally, but for the Republican Party in areas where there's still a union presence, it may well. We have to talk about Tesla. The biggest EV car maker in the United States, of course, is Tesla. Elon Musk, the owner of Tesla, you may have heard, is passionately anti-union. The Tesla plant uh, is in Fremont, California, in the East Bay. This has been, you know, union country for decades. Uh, and I think Sean Fain and the UAW know about Tesla. I think they've heard of it. And I think one effect of being able to cover uh, workers at battery factories and at EV factories uh, is that they they then can go to uh, Fremont, they then can go to Elon Musk's employees and say, hey, you guys uh, can get a better deal uh, because we already have a better deal for our members who are making the same kind of electric cars that you guys are making. And that's the roll the union on aspect of the focus that the UAW has and has to have on uh, electric vehicles. And of course, Elon Musk also knows about the UAW. He said recently, quote, Tesla factories have a great vibe. We encourage playing music and having some fun, close quote. I wonder if you have any comment on how much fun it is to work for Elon Musk. Well, historically, working for Elon Musk has been something of a high-risk proposition, as over half of the former employees of Twitter can attest. There ain't no job security in Elon Musk land. And assuming that the folks who are making Teslas are normal people, which I think is a safe assumption, the idea of job security is, is, is probably one that appeals to them. Before we let you go, I wonder what your thoughts are about Israel's war with Hamas. I should say we are taping this interview on Monday afternoon. Yeah, well, since each day the news just gets grimmer and worse, I'm glad at least you said we're doing this on Monday. No, I mean, it's a kind of an apocalyptic state of affairs right now. I will say this. There is one thing that uh, I think oddly enough unites Israel, the Palestinian Authority, and Hamas, which is none of them are all that keen on having Palestinians vote. Obviously, Israel just doesn't really recognize the Palestinians in either the West Bank or the Gaza Strip. They have really no effective sovereignty. Uh, the Palestinian Authority last held an election in 2005, and Hamas isn't really keen on elections at all. And so uh, having won there once, uh, again, like 17 years ago, you know, I'm not entirely sure that the folks in the Gaza Strip 
uh, understanding the severity of the reprisal that what uh, the Hamas attacks was sure to produce would really have said, yeah, okay, go ahead, do this. I view the justice of the Palestinian cause and the political entities who are representing it and what they do to be two really separate entities. Unfortunately, they are. And uh, barbarism is barbarism, and it can come attached to uh, a cause which that notwithstanding is, is, is a very good and necessary cause. And I am somewhat surprised that some people on the left think, well, now is the time to make the Palestinian case. I think the Palestinian case has not exactly advanced quite the contrary to most people, at least most people in the West who are totally supportive of Palestinian autonomy, still there's an inherent just revulsion at what, what we've seen in the last several days. Harold Meyerson, you can read him at The American Prospect. Harold, thanks for talking with us today. Always good to be here, John. It's the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Voters in Maine will decide next month whether to turn the state's private utilities public. If that happens, it would be a huge step toward dealing with the climate crisis and a model for other states. For comment, we turn to Bill McKibben. Of course, he's an author and environmentalist. He's written more than a dozen books most recently, The Flag, The Cross, and The Station Wagon, a graying American, looks back at his suburban boyhood and wonders what the hell happened. And of course, Bill is a founder of 350.org, a planet-wide collaboration of organizers, community groups, and regular people fighting for a fossil-free future. Among other things, 350.org has pushed for divestment. As a result, more than 1,500 universities foundations, cities, and churches have divested more than $40 trillion from fossil fuels. Bill teaches at Middlebury College in Vermont. He writes for The New Yorker, The New Yorker Review of Books, and The Nation. Bill, welcome back. Well, very good to be with you. And I will add, and it's pertinent here with this stuff we're going to talk about in Maine, most of my work these days isn't at 350, but at Third Act, where we're organizing people over the age of 60, like me, for action on climate and democracy and having a very good time at it. And this uh, main public power proposal that we want to talk about, that really combines around these issues of climate and democracy in powerful ways. Third act. So who owns Maine's electric utilities now? Well, there's two big private utilities and they're uh, all based out of state. And the significant number is that they repatriate out of Maine about $187 million a year in profit uh, back to their shareholders in Calgary or overseas or wherever they're headquartered. So that $187 million, if this was a public utility, some of that could be captured to lower rates and then this utility would also be able, because it wouldn't be trying to make the same 10 or 15% return on investment for its 
shareholders, it would be able to undertake a lot more of the necessary upgrades to really bring renewable energy fully online um, and help in the climate work. It's a perfect example of just how forms of corporate capitalism have gotten us in all kinds of deep holes now. Of course, the transition to renewables wouldn't be automatic. What would it take for uh, public controlled utilities in Maine <laughs> to make the transition? Well, look, uh, you got to build a lot of stuff. You got to put up a lot of solar panels and a lot of wind turbines. Maine is ideally suited for this. And Maine actually just changed its law with the help of the uh, AFL in the state to make the development of offshore wind out in the Gulf of Maine uh, much more attractive. And I think that's going to be a very big deal. But Maine in general needs the same, you know, transmission upgrades and all the other things we need across the country to let us use more of this distributed renewable energy. The big private utilities have a vested interest in slow walking all those transitions as best they can. A public utility wouldn't have that. Uh, it would be able to move much more nimbly, even as it was producing lower rates because it wasn't having to send so much money uh, out of state for something else. I think we sometimes forget about energy prices, both with utilities and with the fossil fuel that we buy to heat our homes or power our cars. Just what an extraordinary economic drain it is on almost every place in the country. Wherever we are, unless we're in Texas or Louisiana, we're basically sending uh, uh, billions of dollars a year, state by state, off to the Koch brothers, off to Exxon, off to Saudi Arabia. If that money stayed close to home, it would be a huge, maybe the biggest imaginable economic uh, revitalization fund going. And I mean, the good news is that every place on the planet has sun and wind. We don't need to rely on the Saudis or the Texans. The cheapest way to generate power on our planet now is to point a sheet of glass at the sun. So if we can just overcome some of this vested interest and inertia, we can make progress pretty fast here. Maine will vote in about a month. Uh, what kind of campaign are the private utilities running? <laughs> An expensive one. Uh, they're outspending the grassroots coalition uh, at the latest count, 32 to one. Um, they've spent going on $30 million and the young people running this campaign to, to take public these utilities have spent less than a million dollars. They had a lead going in in the polls because everybody hates the utilities. And in Maine, particularly, they shut off service to huge numbers of people a year. But I worry that kind of money, you know, just stoking people's fears 24 seven uh, on the TV over and over again. And, you know, one of the things that's really depressing about it is the, you know, PR and ad firms and stuff that they hired. These are people, you know, left over from the Obama administration and things <laughs> who are doing the dirty deed on behalf of the utilities. I learned from your article in The Nation that the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, and with them the main AFL, is siding with the bosses and opposing public ownership of utilities. Why is that? Well, 
The convoluted reasoning, which I think is wrong, is that if it becomes a public utility, then they won't be able to strike as easily. Uh, but in fact, the people proposing this who are very union friendly have put in a lot of provisions to obviate that. I, I'm afraid that this is just one of these cases where the union's just kind of comfortable with the status quo um, and isn't thinking about any of the larger social uh, or environmental uh, factors with it. You know, um, unions are a good progressive force, but that doesn't mean that they're always on the side of, <laughs> of uh, progressive action. Uh, there's a lot of instances in American history where they get pretty easily captured by the bosses. I saw that the Maine State Nurses Association, which represents more than 2,000 nurses in the state, has endorsed the referendum taking electric utilities well, public. So labor's divided here. That's right. And the nurses are great. You know, yeah. it was the nurses who were the biggest, earliest union backers of Bernie's campaigns. Yeah. That's because nurses have to, they end up downstream of all the other trouble we, gets caused. They're the ones who have to patch people up when there's floods and forest fires. They're the ones who deal with all the people who get to breathe the particulates from burning coal and gas and oil. Um, they understand in a very deep way what it is we're doing to this planet and the bodies that depend on it. So one can always count on the nurses to be doing the right thing here. This uh, November 8th, ballot in Maine has a second related provision intended to undermine the move to public ownership of utilities. If that one passes, this other one requires another referendum <laughs> to approve the funding of the takeover. So yeah. even if you win, it looks like you're going to have to do this all over again. These guys are, these guys are um, nothing if not committed to preserving their business model at all costs, even if that business model is you know, taking down the planet, which it currently is. Yeah, it's it's always an uphill fight. But the people, primarily young people behind this referendum have done a really good job of informing Mainers as best they can. It's pretty much the biggest item on the ballot. There's no elections, it's just a referendum. So it's hard to predict the turnout. And it's possible that people who are for public power are more fired up than people who are just being scared by TV ads every night. Well, I also want to talk about a, a related but separate topic, the, tr the transition to electric vehicles, which you've written about recently in the New York Review. Joe Biden spending tens of billions of dollars to fund the transition, but you point out that Battery-powered cars and trucks pose some of the same problems as gasoline-powered cars and trucks. Namely, they still require roads and parking spaces. And it was the parking spaces that got my attention in your wonderful piece. There's a, a new book called Paved Paradise, How Parking Explains the World by Henry Graybar. The facts you cite are amazing. How many parking spaces are there in, say, Phoenix? <laughs> There's way more parking spaces than there are people. The thing that really got me is that there's more parking space per car in America than there is living space per person. You know, an alien would be um, forgiven for believing that the dominant species on our planet is automobiles. I will say, just to go back to where we began, that there is no question that if we're going to drive cars, 
electric ones are a lot better for the world in every way than uh, uh, internal combustion ones. They're more efficient. They use less stuff by far. They don't produce the same amount of carbon and they don't put stuff into the air that causes you to uh, get childhood asthma. But there's other exciting things going on right now. I mean, I think it's possible that the most interesting emerging technology right now is less the electric car than the electric bicycle, yeah. which really is a remarkable piece of technology, John. The, uh, the uh, you know, it just flattens out the hills and it makes bike riding as a kind of primary means of transport really available to lots and lots and lots more people who don't think of themselves as athletes and don't want to wear spandex and you know, <laughs> so on and so forth, but are uh, just rediscovering that this is an extremely efficient, affordable, sensible way of transit. So more bike lanes and, of course, more electric buses. Electric buses are terrific. And you know where the easiest place and probably most important place to begin that transition or to really ramp up that transition is with electric school buses. There's these buses idling in front of schools hour on end. Um, we don't want kids breathing what comes out of the back of those diesel engines. We want nice, quiet electric school bus. There's money in the IRA to get some of that done and communities should be thinking hard about it. Bill McKibben, he wrote about cars for the New York Review and about Maine's referendum on public ownership of electric utilities for The Nation. You can read him at thenation.com. Bill, thank you for all your work and thanks for talking with us today. A real pleasure. We're going to get back to work organizing all this third act stuff that we're doing to take on, especially uh, uh, these big liquefied natural gas export terminals. So we'll get ready to talk about that next time. But it's exciting. And if you come across, you know, any old people like me, send them our way. Bill McKibben, thanks again. Take care, man. It's the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Two girls grew up in the 1980s and 90s in small-town America, Clinton, Arkansas. One made it out and became a successful journalist and writer. Her best friend, who had been funny, sensitive, and super smart as a kid, fell into drugs, bad men, getting pregnant too young, and petty crime. How did their lives turn out so different? That's the story told by Monica Potts in her new memoir, The Forgotten Girls. For comment, we turn to Katha Pollitt. Of course, she's the poet, essayist, and award-winning columnist for The Nation. She also writes for The New York Times, The Atlantic, and The New Yorker. Her most recent book is Pro, Defending Abortion Rights. We reached her today in Connecticut. Katha, welcome back. Hi, John. Thanks for having me on the show. Well, first of all, who is Monica Potts? Oh, Monica Potts is a name you should know. 
Uh, she is a wonderful journalist. She's now working for 538.com. Um, before that, she was at the American Prospect, and she's written for The Times, The Atlantic, The New Republic, and she's been on NPR. So she and her best friend, Darcy, grew up in what we call the heartland, this little town of Clinton, Arkansas. For Darcy, it seemed like the events that changed her life, where they really kind of parted company, was when they were 15 or 16 or 17 years old. And Darcy, the best friend, decided that instead of focusing on college as a way of getting out, she would, in her words, enjoy life, which meant partying and drugs and boys and sex. The experts say, this is part of a well-known pattern. It's a difference between the kids who stay in school and do well in life and those who don't. Uh, and the name the experts give this difference is the ability to delay gratification. They have found this, our experts, even among little kids. Some kids can do this, some kids cannot. They, they got famous using something called the marshmallow test. Remind us what that was. The marshmallow test, they would put a marshmallow in front of a five-year-old and they would say, darling, if you can not eat this for 15 minutes, you can have two marshmallows. Now, 15 minutes is an eternity to a <laughs> five-year-old. And if you really like marshmallows, it might be an eternity to someone even older than that. Um, but some kids were able to do this and some kids, and they got the two and Others were not. And the theory was that the ones who could not withstand the lure of the marsh, the too early marshmallow would be the ones that throughout life would not be able to delay gratification. And this would have great, terrible consequences for them. But, but as Monica Potts explains in the book, turns out this test is completely bogus. Other tests. Uh, have found out that the marshmallow test really doesn't predict anything much, and that in the case that we're interested in, Darcy and Monica, Darcy's turn to partying and drugs and boys and sex, you might call the ability, the inability to delay gratification, but really this book is about all the other things that happened in their lives. One of the biggest differences in their childhoods was their mothers were really different. Uh, tell us about that. Well, Monica's mother, Kathy, uh, was not religious. I and mean, we have to talk about the role of evangelical Protestantism in this whole thing, and also of poverty and the closing of the big factory and everything that's bad that we know that contributes to terrible lives for lots and lots of people in this part of the world. Monica's mother was laser-focused on Monica and her sisters going to college and getting out of there. And she emphasized this constantly. And they, uh, her father, who was not like the world's ideal father, he was an alcoholic and he died in his mid-50s. But he too, and there was no question that Monica was really smart and Monica was going to get out of there. Darcy's mother had a much more chaotic life. She was also a reader, interestingly, and a Seventh-day Adventist, so she was religious. And when it was much earlier than when she was 15, actually, it was in middle school when Darcy went a little boy crazy, as many girls around in, in that 
town did, the mother just kind of threw up her hands and said, well, that's her choice. I mean, what does that mean? A choice of the 12-year-old is making a choice, you know? I mean, that's ridiculous. It really made a kind of case. This book makes a kind of a case for for a little bit of strictness in your parenting, that just because the kid wants to do something, there are larger things at stake. But I don't think the larger thing at stake in the case of Darcy or indeed anyone has to anything to do with marshmallows <laughs> or what you're like when you're five. Evangelical religion. Darcy, the friend, is taken to a Southern Baptist church every Sunday where uh, she gets taught about the, the proper role for women and men. Yes, this is really terrible that this church and this denomination in, reinforces the this, this subjection of women in the most naked and overt way that you are here to be a helpmate to your husband. You, you know, the important thing is being a good wife, a good mother, and you get praise for that. It's a very harsh sexual morality that's, of course, quite sexist because it falls on the girls that, you know, that you have to postpone sex till you're married. So you should marry very young and then you should start having babies right away. You know, so what are you supposed to do if you have a husband who's violent, abusive, oh. unfaithful, and you go to the place you're, you go for help, your pastor, what advice are you given? Well, it's probably your fault. You're probably doing something to provoke this. And the solution is to pray a lot um, and just, you know, Jesus will make it better. Um, it's just the worst messages you could give. These, these girls are not brought up to see themselves as independent actors in the world. They're not brought up to think you might have to support yourself. You might have to support your children. And so what happens is a pattern of having their kids too young before they're ready, marrying whoever or being with whoever. And then that doesn't work out because you're both too young. And then you go from man to man you don't feel that you can be an effective person in the world on your own. It's, it's, very, it's the worst possible message that you could give a young woman. And they, they don't wait till they're young women. It starts when they're little kids. And it wasn't just the churches that were destroying girls' lives. Monica Potts writes, the malign influence of religion was matched by the negligence of adults, especially the authorities at the high school. Please explain that part. Oh, this was so disturbing. Darcy continued to get good grades throughout her high school years, but she was defiant. She was not a teacher's ideal student. <laughs> and they just didn't tell her until it was too late to do anything about it that she had cut too many days to graduate with her class. Now, why couldn't they have sat her down and said, Darcy, you're in danger of not being able to graduate. We really, really think you need to come to school every day. Obviously. Because you're very smart and you could because go to college. Very, because you're very smart and you could go to college. Um, there, nothing was said to her. She had no idea. This was so tragic. Um, another way in which this high school was very deficient, and I, I, I have to say by way of parenthesis, of course, it's the boys who get all the attention. The, so sports is a big deal there. Um, so the other thing that they did, 
and this is, I, I gather, very common. They had the idea that the kids weren't going to amount to much. And so they didn't go the extra mile to find out about scholarships to schools out of, you know, out of out of town and out of state. The, uh, they didn't didn't seem aware that these scholarships existed. They didn't investigate. They didn't stand behind the kids and say, no, go for it. You can do it. And the reason that Monica got to go to Bryn Mawr was really kind of almost an accident that she made this phone call about something else to to Barnard. And she got someone at Barnard who said, oh, you should come to our summer program. And she did. And then then colleges sought her out because then there is help you know, there are possibilities for low-income kids from these places who are really, who are smart and good students. And the, the school seemed completely unaware of that. And I'm real, you can tell in my voice, I'm mad about that. <laughs> can I say one more thing about school? Because it's important. The, the kids from the more prosperous families were treated much better than the kids from the working class families. And the kids from the working class families were, were told to like, well, you know, you're not doing so well in school. It's not really that important for you. You know, there was no sort of recouping people, no saving them, no saying, I see something in you. I mean, so many people have said it was one teacher who saw what I could do. And that made the difference. And at this school, there were not enough people like that. And one other thing at this school, and I think at a lot of schools, the kids who are not doing well, they encourage to drop out so that the graduation rate will be higher. The graduation rate is only of the seniors who graduate. So if they get, if they can convince students who are having problems to drop out as juniors, it, then the school looks better in the statistics. That's really terrible. So the churches are beating her down, the schools aren't helping her, and then there were the drugs. Darcy worked at a drive-in burger place, and Monica Potts writes, people sometimes gave her meth as a tip. Meth was always around. It was easier to get meth than alcohol. Yeah, well, this is what a lot of people have been talking about, is the role of drugs, illegal drugs, in the high death rates uh, for every cause, for suicide, for car crashes for deaths of violence, it was what was called the deaths of despair. And these places are saturated in these very lethal drugs. Uh, and meth is very dangerous. There's another thing I felt about this book that it shows is that the, the adults do not protect the kids. The adults are in there. The men are being kind of predatory. The women are helping to you know promote this awful ideology of subservience. In another place, Darcy might not have even gotten into drugs because they wouldn't have been so available. So Monica goes off to college, does well, becomes an editorial intern, becomes a writer, is mentored, and goes home, as everybody does on holidays, to visit her own mother and also to visit her friend Darcy. And what has happened to Darcy in their 20s? Well, Darcy has had some children. Darcy has been with one man after another and finally ends up with men who are men who are sort of violent and into, you know, are drug dealers, I think. And she has nothing. She has nothing. And then she, I forget what crime she commits, something that she should have probably gotten probation for. And, you know, she she spends a little time in jail 
And it's just the, you just watch this person. Some of her good qualities are helping to destroy her, like her, her kind of optimism, her sense of, I, I should be having a good life. And yet there are no jobs except the most uh, low-paid jobs. I think she does go to community college at one point. And this was very interesting because, uh, especially in view that community college is now something that is being promoted a lot, is that these kids go to community college. They don't really understand that community college is not going to set them up for more college. Um, And they have to take a lot of basic courses that are very boring. They're working and they're they're driving a lot because of they can't live near the college because it's too expensive and so the combination of all those things the boredom the work and the drive and the commuting it just becomes sort of too much and then you just sort of feel like why am i doing this i'm just going to drop out i can always go back and uh that was very sad it seemed to me and 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 unnecessary that High school, I still have the reactionary idea. High school could should prepare you for college. College should not be where you have to go back and learn high school subjects, but it is. Here, here. <laughs> and I want to shift the focus for a minute from the girls to adult women, you know, their mothers. What's, what's it like to be a middle-aged woman in a place like this with a daughter or two who have little kids, abusive husbands, and live in poverty? Well, this is another terrible thing is that there are so many grandmothers who are raising their grandchildren. And when you say grandmothers, how old are these grandmothers? Grandmother might be 40. Um, And, you know, that that whole middle generation has been kind of hollowed out by by drugs. And the older generation are left raising the youngest ones. And the older generation, you know, they have heart problems. They're not healthy. They're obese. They have heart problems. They don't get exercise. They don't have any fun. (laughs) Um, You know, it's really, you know, they're often in not great relationships with men and they don't have any money. It's very stressful. And this is part of these early deaths that we're seeing now. One last thing, abortion rights. I wonder if the recent, you know, ban on abortion in Arkansas affected the lives of young women like Darcy at all. Wasn't the whole system set up decades ago to prevent them from getting abortions, even when they were legal? Yes. um, And uh, Arkansas became one of the first, if not the first state to ban abortion after Dobbs. But before that, it wasn't easy to get an abortion. And you can see how a community like this, it would be very hard to to even go to Little Rock or wherever to get your abortion, even if you could have the thought of like, I don't care what everybody else says, it says it's murder, I'm going to go do this. And what Monica told me when we talked on the phone is that the common pattern is to have your kids young, and then you get your tubes tied, you get mm-hmm. you, uh, so you don't have any more. I don't know. I guess that's one way of doing it. But by the time you've done that, you've missed a lot. You've missed you've missed college. You've missed the early stages of a good career. And you're probably on a, not a good path with men. So there are some women who do OK. I don't mean to sl- cite that. And I don't mean to say that having children is a terrible thing. I mean, the other piece of it is our society does nothing for mothers with children. 
if this story had taken place in, let's say, Germany, where for all its faults and its lamentable history, which we must never forget, (laughs) if you are a single mother, they take care of you. You you have a place to live. You have enough to eat. There are opportunities for you. um, And that's the way it should be. It shouldn't be, oh, I had a baby when I was 17. That was a terrible mistake. And now the rest of my life is going to be garbage. It shouldn't be like that. At the end of the book, Monica Potts visits her friend Darcy at a county jail in Arkansas, where Darcy says she was in for 103 days. And after she gets out, Darcy asks Monica about the book she is writing, the book we are now reading. And she asks Monica, at the end of this book, will they know we're best friends? And Monica Potts writes on her last page, I never had a better friend than Darcy. That is a heartbreaker. Really? Really? No, it's a great book and everybody should read it. And I learned so much from it about a part of the world I don't know very much about. Katha Pollitt wrote about the book The Forgotten Girls by Monica Potts for The Nation. You can read her column at thenation.com. Katha, this is great. Thanks for talking with us today. Thanks for having me, John. That's it for today's Living in the USA. Our social media maven is Renee Reynolds. KPFK's programming traffic director is Matt Perez. Thanks, as always, to Rye Cooter for our theme music, Mambo Sinuendo. Living in the USA is recorded and produced at our Blythe Avenue studios in Los Angeles. If you miss part of this show or any of our recent shows, you can listen online anytime you want at livingintheusapod.com. I'm John Wiener. We'll be back next week talking about politics, thinking about the left, and living in the USA. Living in the USA.